Amen. Good morning. Well, another beautiful Sunday. It's, it's cold and wet, which is really how I would kind of summarize the month of February. So I always tell people my wife's birthday is in February, my mom's birthday is in February, my birthday is in February, and I can't help but think that God gave mercifully allowed me to be born in the most miserable month of the year. Um, but you got Valentine's Day, so that's good. Um, anyway, I uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to presume who would come or who would not. But I just uh, like I said last week, I just thank y'all for making church a priority, making Jesus a priority. I know you didn't come for me, you come for the Lord, and so that's why we preach God's word. Um, but um, you know, I was thinking this week about. Super Bowl Sunday, and by the way, Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl when I was a sophomore in high school. I'm thirty. I'm turning thirty-two next week. Let that sink in. Um, but I was also thinking, my boss. I don't know if I've mentioned before. My boss, right after college, played in the NFL. Um, he was a defensive end for the Chargers for a couple years, or maybe a year. I think he got cut. Um, but he was, a, he was an All-American at UK. He was the, I think I've told you before, he was the 1993 Peach Bowl MVP. His name was Zane Bean. And when I was looking to go to seminary, Zane gave me a job working at the local Ragu factory where Zane was. I, people always laugh when I say that. I'm, the, ragu has to come from somewhere, okay? Um... <laughs> And uh, Zane was the head of maintenance, and Zane's figure, like if he would walk through that door right now, his his presence would be striking because he's six foot seven, like two hundred and seventy pounds, and he was so kind that everywhere we would go, people would always call Zane a gentle giant. Everywhere, like we, he he loved going out for lunch, so he'd always take me to lunch, you know. People go, man, he's just a, you're just a gentle giant, you know. And I was thinking, I always, I always thought, why do people call him a, a gentle giant? Well, one, I think we expect, we don't expect giants to be gentle. Um, there's irony in that phrase, in that name. And I was thinking on that because our text this morning has a lot of irony to it. I would dare say that this book is jam-packed with irony. We serve a God who is both lion and lamb. That's very ironic. It's supposed to be ironic. It's supposed to be very ironic that our king died on a cross. That's ironic. That God became man. That's very ironic. And what I mean by ironic is not that it's funny, it's that you would not expect that. The gospel is full of seeming contradictions. That's why I read out of Revelation chapter 5 this morning is because at the end of time, at the consummation of, of, the, of eternity, when it's all wrapped up and it's all given to God, the one we're worshiping is a slain lamb. That's very ironic. And it's supposed to be, and it's not only supposed to be, we're supposed to glory in that. God is supposed to get glory 
by being a lion and a lamb. If anyone is a gentle giant, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so without any further ado, let's get into our text this morning. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. So if you may stand for the reading of God's Word. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, please reveal to us this morning, open our eyes to see how glorious it is that our King is both Lion and Lamb. Amen. You can be seated. I was talking to Daryl Ellison, who's not here, tragically. I don't know why he's not. He told me he would be here. Um, Daryl has been reading his Bible diligently. And I think you have my permission and his. If next time you see him, be like, you still reading your Bible? Because he is. He's, he's reading his Bible. And Daryl um, is taking the approach where he's just going to go from Genesis to Revelation. That's it. Yeah. He cannot be deterred from his path. He says, I'm going to go the entire Bible. And I said, that, that's good. I, said, I suggested, however, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament simultaneously. A little bit from both. He, he said, that's not for me. He said, this is the way it was written. This is the way I'm going to read it. And I said, I can't argue with that. And uh, well, I explained to him that the reason I thought it'd be good to read them both at the same time was that the New Testament was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises in Christ. And he could see how that worked, maybe, maybe better, clearer, if he did it at the same time. Well, when I explained it like that, he had this perplexed look on his face. And of course, you know how it ends, because he's still, this morning, still undeterred. He's still, you know... And he threw up his hands and he's something like, well, then why am I even reading the Old Testament then? Is what he said. And I laughed. And you could tell when he asked it, he wanted a response. He said, you know, anybody who's read through Leviticus says, why am I doing this? You know. And I explained to him something that we're going to talk about this morning, which is, this morning we're reading the, really what is the second act of John's testimony about Jesus. And when Jesus walks up on the scene, John announces him and describes him in Old Testament language. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, and the Spirit descends and remains on Jesus. 
These are extremely important images that tell us not only who Jesus is, but about what Jesus came to do. So as I was telling Daryl, the New Testament is chock full of Old Testament language and imagery. So it's not in vain. In fact, it helps us understand more when Jesus finally comes on the scene. So unless we unpack what they mean in the Old Testament, we really can understand what John means in its fullness. So John chapter 1, verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So upon seeing Jesus, the first name that John gives him is the Lamb of God. Not a lamb, the lamb. This is God's lamb. That's how he introduces the Son of God. Well, why? This is what John Newton says about the name Lamb of God in verse 29. This title, therefore, the Lamb of God, refers to His voluntary substitution for sinners, that by His sufferings and death, they who deserve to die might obtain eternal life through Him and for His sake. His voluntary substitution, John Newton says. So when we hear the phrase, Lamb of God, John Newton says we should think about substitution. In other words, Jesus stood in our place as our substitute, took our punishment, paid our debt, satisfied the demands of justice that we might be forgiven. Jesus is the slaughtered substitute. He's the Lamb of God. Which then leads to the question, well, why did John come up with this animal to depict Jesus? Well, as it turns out, lambs or sacrificial animals are all over the Old Testament. In fact, I would dare say the very life of Israel is defined in terms of sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and to offer who? His son Isaac as a burnt offering. As they're walking up the mountain, Isaac figures out that burnt offerings usually come with lambs, and dad, there ain't no lamb. And this is what Abraham tells his son. Genesis chapter 22, verses 7-8. through 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, this, this gives me chills, God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. I mean, I just, I just love that. Okay, then Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, are eventually enslaved in Egypt, as we know. God tells Moses and Aaron that he's about to strike the firstborn in Egypt. And God tells Moses and Aaron this in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. He says this, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they take some of the blood and put it on, the, on two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So God already, by the time we arrive at the beginning of Exodus, God has already established that He will provide a lamb and that the lamb will, in essence, the blood of the lamb will cause Him to relent of His judgment. Then in Exodus chapter 24, God ratifies His covenant with Israel at Sinai and He says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then when God is teaching His people about the laws of a sin offering in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 22, He says this, When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. What does all this mean? Burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Time after time, God is reminding His people, in order for you to come into His presence, in order for you to be delivered from your sin and your enemies, in order for you to be redeemed and to dwell with the living God, you must pay with blood. That's how costly sin is. That's the infinite price that must be paid. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. He's saying, if you won't die, a lamb's got to die. If you won't die, a goat must die. If she won't die, an oxen must die. And then Jesus Christ walks up on the scene and John the Baptist says, He will die. This isn't just any lamb. This is God's lamb. His pure, holy, unblemished, unstained lamb. He has prepared not to atone for one ethnic group or one household or one person. He is atoning for the sins of a new people who He will gather from all corners of the earth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, you talk about an introduction. From Abraham's walk with Isaac, where he, God provides a lamb so that he didn't have, so that Isaac could live, to the slaughter of the Passover lambs, to ratifying his covenant, to the Levitical priesthood. The entire sacrificial system is designed for us to understand after thousands of years, God is patiently, intricately, lovingly preparing his people for their utter need for his son Jesus. God ordained all these things so that by the time John gets on the scene and shouts, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, I would imagine in my mind he would probably shout that. We know what he means. We see his glory. He's our eternal guilt offering. He's our Passover Lamb. God's judgment, the wrath over the Father, passes over us when He sees that we're covered in the blood of Jesus. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the Lamb who is to be slaughtered. Many scholars have speculated whether John the Baptist knew all that he was actually saying. Did he know about the cross? Did he know about the torn veil? Did he know about the resurrection? Probably not. 
But what is abundantly clear in John's introduction is this. Put away your bulls and your goats. The lamb is here. This is why Daryl needs to be reading his Old Testament. That's why it's not in vain. If Daryl keeps reading, he's going to get to John 1 and go, oh, that's what God was doing. That's why I read Leviticus. That's why I read Exodus, as we're going to see later. That's why I read 1 Samuel and the kingship. This is him. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. I just I love this passage because it explains this principle beautifully. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having only once been cleansed, would no longer have need of consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So God has prepared a physical body for His Son so that He could serve as the Lamb of God, appease the wrath of the Father, take our punishment once and for all, so we didn't have to keep going before the altar and appeasing Him and settling our consciences with bulls and goats. I think one thing I, I regret as, as, as I was younger was not reading the Old Testament a lot. I don't think our, our pastor... Um, I was convicted when I was preparing this sermon. I think we need to preach... need to maybe take some time from John to preach the Old Testament. One of the most common questions I get as a pastor is this. How do I know the Bible's true? I mean, raise your hand if anybody's ever, ta- if anybody's ever asked you about the Bible. I used to get that question a lot uh, in college especially. I still get it, but in college I was like, and what's the classic answer? Well, it just is. (laughs) It's kind of just redundant. Well, how do I know the Bible's true? Well, because it's God's Word. Well, how do I know it's God's Word? Because God said it is in His Word. You know, I think that a long time ago, because the Bible tells me so worked, I don't think that's working as much now. We live in a skeptical age. Well, how do I know the Bible's true? Because God's Word says it's true. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, tough. I think we... I have a better answer for that. And I, I just wanted to take some time. How do, to the question, how do I know I can trust the Bible? You know, faith is the answer, I guess. But I think the best answer is the word glory. And here's what I mean. If you can't see the glory of the Bible and how it all fits together, how the law points to the grace of Christ, how the sacrificial system points to the Lamb of God, how our sin couldn't be wiped away by blood of bulls and goats, how Israel was delivered from enslavement but yet couldn't be delivered from its sin, how idolatry sticks with humanity and we need a Redeemer, how we constantly and constantly failing before God, how Israel has a stiff-necked people, how we need a substitute who is perfect, who is righteous, 
If you don't see the seamless plan of God in this book, if you don't see our great need of a Savior and how God is taking slowly, slowly and showing us the glory of His Son, I'm not sure anything else could convince you. Asking me how do I know the Bible is God's Word is like asking me how do, how do I know that God made Mount Everest. We're meant to see the glory of the Bible just as much as we're meant to see the glory of Mount Everest. And I was very convicted of that because I love mountains. When I see a mountain, I'm like, God is good. How many people can stand before an ocean or a mountain and just be like, oh, I love that. Do we do that with His Word? We should. Because the God's Word is bringing into clearer focus that which we can see in a mountain. If we can stand in awe before an ocean, we can stand in awe before the oracles of God. And when we come to John 1, he says, the Lamb of God, we should glory in Christ Jesus. The best way to see the glory of verse 29, behold the Lamb of God, is to see it as a desperate sinner in need of atonement before a holy God. Charles Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon's most famous book is Lectures to My Students. And in that book, he tells a very short story about a surgeon, not Spurgeon, surgeon. And this is what he says, very, very short story. He says this, When I was in Belfast, I knew a doctor who had a friend, a leading surgeon there. And he told me that the surgeon's custom was, before performing any operation, to say to the patient, take a good look at the wound and then fix your eyes on me. Don't take them off until I get through with the, with the operation. I thought at the time that that was a good illustration. And then he says this, Sinner, take a good look at the wound tonight. And then fix your eyes on Christ and don't take them off. It is better to look at the remedy than at the wound. When Jesus steps on the scene in Bethany, John the Baptist is telling them, it's time to stop looking at the wound. The remedy is here. The great physician is here. John was appointed by God to fulfill Old Testament prophecy and prepare the way for the remedy. In verse 30, John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now somebody could go, John, John and Jesus are the same age, so I don't get how he comes before him. Well, what John is saying is, this man is actually a God-man, and he's been eternally existent before the foundation of the world. But actually, we talked about lion and the lamb, and this is where it actually gets really interesting. Verses 31 through 33, he says this. This is John the Baptist speaking. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John is baptizing with water, because he's merely pointing to a greater reality, which is that Jesus will come baptizing by the Holy Spirit. 
He's baptizing with water as he says, quote unquote, so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. So we can't understand John's baptism without understanding Jesus' baptism. This is kind of what Apollos in Acts 18 kind of got confused. Jesus has come to resurrect sinners by the Holy Spirit. That's what the water baptism is about. This is one of my primary objections with Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, They believe that baptism is about cleansing. And I, I don't see that as much emphasized in the New Testament as the baptism is a, isn't just a washing, it's a resurrecting. It's pointing to the resurrection of sinners. John's baptism by water is preparing people for the idea that they must be born again. Okay, so we're actually baptizing Naomi next week. Naomi James, she's your sister in Christ. And when we baptize Naomi, we're not saying, hey, Naomi's clean now. What we're doing is we're pointing to a symbol that means Naomi, the old Naomi is dead, and this is the new Naomi. It's not just cleansing. Everyone that goes under that water, they're saying, I was dead and now I'm alive. That's what John's pointing to with this water baptism. You've got to be born again. Now, what's odd here is that John, unlike... Matthew, for instance, John doesn't give Jesus' baptism account. So what we're reading here when he talks about the Spirit descending from heaven, that's Jesus' baptism. He doesn't really give us a really great account of that. But that's not really John's point. John's point is verse 32 and 33. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Well, here's another example of Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit temporarily comes upon individuals so that they can fulfill a particular task. So, for example, when a king in the Old Testament is anointed, they are anointed for that particular role that God has for them. So, for instance, 1 Samuel chapter 16 Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So in the Old Testament, to have the Holy Spirit on you, to come upon you, is to be anointed by the Lord. Don't miss that. That's what John sees on Jesus, except there's something different about this anointing. Verse 32, John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. It remained on Him. Jesus isn't simply anointed. He's the Messiah. John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, The Father gives the Son the Spirit without measure. So Jesus isn't just the King. He's the King of kings. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. John's saying, This Jesus is both lion and lamb. The Lord's anointed is our substitute. There's that irony thing again. I wanted to take just a second to explain when people people sometimes um, say, have you ever heard someone um, call the preacher the Lord's anointed? You heard people say that? Or have you ever heard someone say, well, he's anointed by God? Okay. That needs to be qualified, I think. Um I've heard, I've heard people at churches talk about pastors as if they were infallible because, oh, you don't, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. 
we have to qualify that a little bit, and I just wanted to take some time, because it's, it's, it's important in the way that we understand Jesus. Yes, the Holy Spirit is using, for example, me. When I preach God's Word and the Gospel is preached, I'm anointed by the Holy Spirit to do so. Yes, the Holy Spirit is using that person to proclaim the Word of God. But just like the Old Testament, a person is anointed, a sinner is anointed by the Holy Spirit for a particular task, for a particular role. And the Lord's anointing of someone only extends as far as the Word of God does. So Abitad is not infallible. If I'm preaching from the Word and I'm proclaiming the oracles of God to you faithfully, that's how you know that I'm, I'm anointed by God. This is, this is uh, the difference between, for example, uh, a pastor and the Pope. Like, we believe that a pastor can be anointed by God to preach God's Word. Catholics believe that the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and his, it's not necessarily his role that's anointed, it's his office, and that's dangerous. Um, and the reason I bring this up is, if I am preaching God's Word, and I'm not preaching Christ, I'm not anointed. My job is to preach the Lord's anointed, who is Christ. Does that make sense? I am not the fulfillment of Old Testament kingship. I am not the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the Lord's anointed. doesn't mean that I can't be anointed. doesn't mean that you can't be as well. But we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We can have the Spirit come upon us. But, but look what it says in John. The Spirit remained on Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means that the Spirit, Jesus has the Spirit without measure. When we see the Spirit descend on the Son of God, it doesn't mean that Jesus is becoming the Son of God. What John is seeing is the limitless relationship between the Spirit and the Son. He's seeing triune glory. That's really deep, but I just want to take that time. Um, I don't think anyone struggles with me being infallible. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of pastors, I think, sometimes you know, people will say, well, He's the Lord's anointed. We need to make sure that we understand Jesus is the Word. Therefore, He has the Spirit without measure. If we don't preach God's Word, uh, I, I think that calls into question the Lord's anointing. He is both lion and lamb. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, what's the first thing they do? They hide. What's the second thing they do? They clothe themselves. With what? Well, eventually they clothe themselves with animal skins. So upon the very first sin, something had to die. Upon the very beginning of time, it was clear, sin brings death. And then you have Jesus coming upon the scene and He says, something does have to die, I will die. I will lay it down of my own accord. I am a lion who will become a lamb. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit is also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh around the world. Joel 2. When Jesus comes as a lamb of God, He says, you don't have to sacrifice anything anymore. 
I will give my own life so that you can have mine. I will take your unrighteousness so that you can wear my righteousness. Where else on earth will you find an anointed king who possesses the very presence of God without measure and yet would willingly subject himself to a slaughter as a lamb? That is our God. That is the God we worship. This morning, if you have never repented of your sin and believed in Jesus, my message to you is the same John preached to the people of Israel. Behold the Lamb of God! And I wanted to end with this. Our church, we are the church of the Lamb. When you come to church and when you worship God, what you're saying is, I am ready and I find my hope and I'm wanting to worship a lion who became a lamb. You know, there's some humility and even some ridiculousness to that today. You know, all these other religions are really manly religions. Islam is a very manly religion. Because Allah doesn't do anything compared to what our God does. He comes down and takes our payment. And so this morning I just wanted to end with when Jesus declares Himself a lamb, when a king becomes a lamb for the slaughter, that's not just meant to be ironic. We are supposed to glory and worship in that because that's how we come to know the living God. Let's pray. Father, we trust You because we cannot trust ourselves. We put our faith in Your goodness because we have no goodness of our own. We have committed infinite evil against You. But we know that in Christ, Jesus took an infinite punishment that we could never pay. He is a lion who became a lamb. Both majesty and meekness. And Father, we just we worship You for being a God of unconditional love who could do such extraordinary things for such pitiful people. Thank You for being a great God. Even for great sinners. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen. And we invite you to stand and sing with us as we continue our worship.